Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the host of the Sendcast and I'm also the managing director of B Squared. If this is your first Sendcast, then welcome. The aim of the Sendcast is really simple. We want to reach lots and lots of people and help everyone learn, including me, more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing challenging the pedagogy of professional decline. My guest this week is Rachel Lofthouse, a professor of teacher education at Leeds Beckett University. She has worked in education for over 30 years and has a keen interest in understanding and enabling professional learning at all career stages and across education sectors. The Sendcart is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We can help you show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We can help schools to show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages, including those working at age-related expectations, not just SEN. But do you know about Autism Progress, our framework for helping profile a pupil's autism and how it impacts them? Based on certs and looks at communication, social interaction, emotional regulation, and flexible thinking, Autism Progress also includes a wide range of strategies to help support the pupils too. Visit the B-Square website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and I can take you through our assessment software and autism progress now. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing the pedagogy of professional decline. What does this mean? What is it like? And what is the impact? Joining me this week is Rachel Lofthouse, a professor of teacher education at Leeds Beckett University and founder of Collective Ed, the teacher for coaching, mentoring, supervision and professional learning. Rachel has worked in education for over 30 years and has maintained a keen interest in understanding and enabling professional learning at all career stages and across education sectors. Her current extended interests include developing practices to support a more sustainable educational profession and more inclusive schools and she is participating in EU-funded projects in these areas. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you for having me. You've written a, bo- a blog about the pedagogy of professional decline, and right at the beginning of the blog post is this quote. It describes both classroom practices and CPD, which reduce agency, neglect expertise, drive conformity, narrow opportunities, damage relationships. It is the opposite of helping learners flourish. And you can kind of say we seem to be heading more towards teaching by numbers. Yes, that's another way of thinking about it, isn't it? That that sense of, you know, that you can simplify everything down and know in advance exactly what you're expected to do, what might work. And if you like, reduce the need for teachers to have the knowledge base of the pupils they're teaching, the subject they're teaching, and the, the breadth of repertoire that might really make a difference to learners and I do like the word flourishing because I think that is what schools should be yes flourishing spaces so I think and I'm going to use white rose because white rose is very popular at the moment since covid but it is very much kind of we're doing all the schools are going to white rose we're doing the same thing and in my head there are certain things where you're kind of being told what to do but you're not necessarily understand the reasons why why that approach Mm -hmm. what works what that theory is behind it so that if something doesn't work, you kind of know how to then adapt it. I, I feel we're kind of going on this tightrope in some areas that this is what we do. But if you fall off that, there's nothing else. 
phonics is a very good example for that one. I think so, yes. And and I, I think all of these schemes are introduced with the very best intentions. You know, they are introduced to provide a way of reducing workload demand, to give confidence uh, to teachers at any stage in their career that they've got resources that are tried and tested in theory. But one of the significant outcomes of this over-reliance on, on schemes is that teachers are not challenged to think for themselves. And teachers often really flourish when they do, and so do their learners. So there is, it, we could consider them to be quite reductive. It, as I say, it's not because they were badly intended, but the consequence can be quite reductive. I think at B Square, we do all about assessment. We have all these skills and people go, oh, so this is a curriculum. It's like, no, this is an assessment scheme. This is all the skills you're going to do. The curriculum will come from somewhere else. And it's the curriculum is a bit that makes this engaging. It makes it interesting. Yeah, it's the topics you're doing. It's how you're doing it. So if you're a forest school or creative, it's something to get them engaged. And that really has to come from that person in the room who has to be Mm -hmm. really invested in what they're doing to get that engagement. Because we've all had as, as children a teacher who was really passionate about something and shared their passion with you. And there are things you probably remember more, which has nothing to do with what you're probably supposed to be learning, but that teacher's passion that you really remember. And that's the thing. I think with these curriculums, it's you want that teacher to be really in for it and going for it and believing in it and invested in it because that passion comes out. But when you have yeah. these schemes where this is what we're going to do week by week, kind of... You lose the teacher. You, you lose the teacher and all of their quirks and personalities and their and and some people would argue that those quirks and personalities of individual teachers are the thing that most distracts from learning but I think the other way of considering that is the way that you've articulated there which is that it's the thing that makes learning human the relationship between the, the students and the teacher is a, is founded on a human relationship and you can't create that off a template it comes from the people in the space. And I think it's interesting because you've already used the term curriculum, you've used the word scheme, and you've used the word assessment. If we go back to when I trained to teach and when I was if like chalk face training teachers to teach in, in the 2000s it was, I think the word that we most commonly used was pedagogy. And we really spent a long time thinking about, well, what is the, the repertoire of the pedagogy that would be appropriate for the subjects that we're teaching that would be appropriate for the pupils and students that we're teaching and that the teacher can develop over time a greater range of and skills in using. So the notion of pedagogy for me is is the way that we build the relationship between the learner and what is to be learned and also the way that we construct relationships between learners in cohorts and between the learners and their teachers. So it's, it's got that sense of Um, relationship at its heart and there are an absolute wealth of pedagogic choices that we can make but we first of all have to be aware of them we secondly have to be confident that they're allowed you know that nobody's going to come in and squash our choices and tell us that we've made incorrect choices and that actually we need space and time to for those pedagogies to fulfill their if you like the wealth of learning that can come from them. The thing is, 
again, when you talk about that, it's the opposite of curriculum. It's the opposite of this scheme and the amount of work you've got to get through. And I do think that my experience of secondary school through my daughter's eyes and also um, a couple of teachers I know is it's all about getting through the content for the exams. And it's very much you have X amount of content, you've got X amount of time. It's kind of just a very long marathon of just getting through it, mm-hmm. which is the complete opposite of what you were just talking about. Yes. And it's very much, it's the result of the current policies that have been enacted on us. And again, we could question where they came from and what their purpose is. But we are, we're, we're, and this again, many teachers that are now in schools are the product of a school system themselves, which is not dissimilar to what they're now being asked to enact. You know, you have to go back quite a few years now to find secondary school curricula and assessment routes that were really rich in kind of more open-ended tasks coursework, modular exams, so that you didn't have to acquire quite so much information to deliver it onto an exam paper at the end of two years. You could you could take your time learning things and perhaps learn them in a bit more depth because you weren't going to have to just remember some superficial facts at the very end. You were going to be assessed along the way and given credit along the way. And I think this relationship between the assessment systems that we use, the curricula that help drive towards the assessment and the loss of pedagogic repertoire is a really interesting contemporary phenomena. It feels regressive rather than progressive, like we've gone back in time rather than we're really thinking about the future. I, I, was, I went to school, I was secondary school in the first half of the 90s, and I did lots of projects where you got stuck into something, and some things I really got stuck in and some things I really didn't. And I made lots of mistakes. I failed lots of times. I learned how to learn. I did lots of things which helped me learn how I learn. And a lot of that was self-directed learning because you're just going off on a topic and you're coming up with ideas and going down routes and having your own ideas and going, actually, no, that's wrong. I've done it wrong and redoing things or writing things out and going, actually, I've cancelled myself up or whatever. But you kind of, you did these, you made these mistakes and you learned from them. Whereas I do find that not having this open-ended work, this, these projects, these essays that we used to do, it's very much, these are the answers. It's very much conformity and standardization is where mm-hmm. we are at, which again, opposite of that whole pedagogy ideal. And it, it is essentially the answer to the question that we the politicians have been asking which is how can we make education more efficient yes how can we how can we streamline the process in all sorts of ways so that it's a going to achieve more supposedly rigorously and robustly measurable outcomes so that we can be sure that we've got if you like an order a rank order of kids at the end of it yeah because that's helpful if we know exactly where somebody sits in a rank order apparently it's also to do with you know loading more and more expectations on teachers and therefore needing to reduce some of what what can be argued is a superfluous workload so you went to school in the early 90s i was teaching throughout the whole 90s 
And one of the things that I, I remember so vividly from that time was, was GCSE, teaching GCSE geography, was the design of the coursework that my 100 geography students would undertake in their, in, towards the end of year 10. And it was up to me as their teacher to design that coursework. I had to make sure that what I was asking of them was obviously relevant in the curriculum. I had to ensure that I was structuring it in such a way that it allowed a whole range of types of learning outcome, but that which could be graded because clearly it was going to go towards an exam grade, but which was accessible for everybody, whether they were likely to get a grade in those days, A or G, I think, might have been yeah. the lowest grade, maybe U, it was an unclassified, yes, I can remember that. So we'll cross the whole range because, you know, uh, geography GCSE students were working at a whole range of levels and that piece of coursework had to work across that range. But it also had to be the sort of piece of work where they were going to gather some meaningful learning from it, that it, would, it wouldn't just be instrumental. In order to get 20 or 20% of their GCSE grade, they had to get it right, that actually it was such an important part of their GCSE grade that something really substantial had to be learned through it. And it was geography, so it had to involve field work, gathering data. It also had to involve problem solving. It had to involve the opportunity to articulate an idea as well as represent the findings of something. There's a whole host of things. And without doubt, it was a complex, challenging task for a teacher that you generally did collaboratively, that you tested out in a network to make sure that it wasn't completely off-piste. But it was one of the most interesting pieces of professional work that we did. And I think from the feedback that we would get from the students, from the commitment that some of them would put into it, it was also one of the most interesting pieces of the curriculum that they were exposed to because it did all those things that you've described. And of course, you could argue that it was too much work for teachers, setting it, moderating it, marking it, making sure it wasn't actually done by the, by the parents that it was done by the pupils, you know, and this, this is, you know, one of the challenges of, of more divergent assessment, but it was a really interesting way of working. And of course, time has moved on. I'm not going to hark back to the 1990s and say that that was the ideal, but we are surely able even now to offer our children and young people an opportunity to learn things that are meaningful, but also that they know have been created for them by people who know them and who can interrogate the curriculum in ways that will make it of interest to them, as opposed to just, we just need to learn this so you can retrieve it so that you can pass an exam. Because I think you'll find, especially with stuff like geography, the, the topics you would do within geography would depend where you live in the country. Mm -hmm. So you can make it really localised, whereas the whole country doing the same projects, whether you live in the centre of London or deepest, darkest Norfolk or Cornwall or somewhere, it's a very different, the world around you is very different. And you should, if you do something around your local area that helps you understand why your local area is the way it is and things like that, it makes so much more sense to you. Mm -hmm. You've got that meaning within there. And I think I'm, I, I did geography and I loved my geography coursework. I did one on businesses and one on rivers and I really enjoyed them. I put a lot of work in, a lot of effort in, really found them interesting. Other subjects at the time, I didn't enjoy as much. But all the things you're talking about there was there was a lot of trust in that teacher. 
There had to be, yes. There was a lot of trust in that teacher's ability to do all of these things and then the marking that you would mark fairly. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of when we started doing the idea of league tables and ranking children, that that all kind of started to fall apart. Because could you trust a teacher who is being pressured by the head teacher who is being pressured by the local authority to get those grades up? And the answer should be, of course you can. <laughs> but. But. But suspicion crept in, I think. Yes. So therefore, we kind of moved away from the coursework and moved to purely exam-based. And I was quite shocked that my daughters weren't doing any essays. I did some research, and apparently one of the things I read was, which was exactly what you said, is some children were helped by their parents. Some children were doing the homework for them. Some were paying for tuition. And it was that kind of idea that the more well-off families could put support their children's education, which gave them an unfair advantage. Whereas with exams, everyone has the same chance to give that information. The parents can't support them in the work and things like that. And I kind of get that. But I do think we've lost a lot for that to happen. And I, although I think the argument makes sense initially, I don't think the evidence uh, proves that that's correct, that we've eradicated inequality as a result of using more exams. There's greater inequality and inequity in many ways. So we know that in some communities, you know, 50 to 80% of children are being home home tutored, not homeschooled, but they're getting additional tutoring, particularly in preparation for the SATs or for their GCSEs. Now that's only available to independent, independently to families who can afford it. And we know that even the catch-up tutoring that the DfE funded, the in the end, that was benefiting the most affluent communities, not the ones that most needed the opportunity to catch up. So inequality always seeps into every system. And until we think about tackling inequality, we are just going to have to live with that. And that's why we have to think about tackling inequality in order to resolve educational inequality. The thing is, I was, I, I'm someone who, um, especially if you give me a multi-choice exam, I will ace that exam. Give me a written exam and I will probably do really, really badly give me coursework, I will do really, really well because I will have time to really process and think about it. And other people, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea of having everyone to produce that information within a certain amount of time with certain keywords in those answers written a certain way doesn't mean anything apart from you conform. And I think it's also about what are we... What are we exposing young people to? So I was talking recently to a new A-level student and she was reflecting on the choices she'd made. I mean, we're only, what, two months in, three months in, and she was enjoying every subject. But to some extent, she was regretting having chosen more humanities, uh, actually psychology and sociology, and not more science. And it wasn't because she was more interested in science. It was because she had been trained to think that in science and maths, for example, the most important thing was getting the right answer. Once you'd got the right answer, you could write it down and that was it, job done. 
Whereas what she was learning in sociology and psychology at A level was that she like there's this enormous world to explore, and she was finding it quite hard to regulate her own learning without going down like every possible avenue. Now that's you know it's lovely that she can and she's interested in, in all of it, but she was feeling weighted down by the option of learning so much. In comparison to some of her friends who could rattle off a homework in physics quite quickly because they just had to find the right answer, and that was job done. Yeah, my daughter going from GCSEs to A levels, it was a complete change. And yeah, I, I really get that. She has a lot more freedom to do what she wants, and she is someone who has really excelled with that freedom, whereas others it's kind of like they're expected to be able to manage their workload themselves and work independently really, really well. But that's not what GCSEs is about. GCSEs is about almost having weekly deadlines for everything. Whereas my daughter going to A-level and she's doing graphic design and computing where she's got months long or terms, years worth of projects, Mm -hmm. and she's keeping to her deadlines, whereas lots of others, because there isn't that weekly, you've got to do this, they're getting further behind. So they've lost mm-hmm. this ability to keep up with that work, which I think I learned at secondary school with all these open-ended things that you have to be that you got better at it. It took years. Mm-hmm. I think when I got to A-levels, I was better at it. And it's part of the, it's part of the pedagogic skill of a teacher to be able to acknowledge that some tasks are quite substantial and they may be long-running but that you scaffold them over time to create success and progress. And that it isn't just a, you know, a little body of knowledge to be learned, to be retrieved, and then to be moved on from. Yes. It's about developing really sophisticated learners. So one of the other real symptoms, I think, of the pedagogy of professional decline is that we aren't creating very sophisticated learners. We're creating learners who can be successful in a certain type of task as opposed to the wide-ranging tasks that might actually make up more further further education, higher education, and life. Yes. That's the thing is I've seen, I was trying to find a quote from it this morning, and it was, it was a social media discussion about, and I think someone said the phrase that children only learn when the teacher is talking or something like that. And it was a whole conversation about how much time a teacher should talk and all this lot. And it's like, oh, here isn't instruction from the teacher, then children won't be learning. And I'm going, I did most of my learning completely on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm interested in something. I want to know the answer. I'll go research. Whatever that random fact is, I've got all these skills, of knowing how to research and an interest and off I go. I will learn lots of useless information in my adult life. I will learn lots of useful information as well. But the idea of I can only learn if someone else is with me, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's, it. the problem is, I guess, that you could begin to bend this argument and almost suggest that teachers are entirely unnecessary. You know, that we've got technologies, for example, that we've got, we can create 
spaces and opportunities for that independent kind of learning or that more directed learning, but directed through a technological system. And that the teaching role is no longer necessary or redundant. And in fact, you know, there are some, there is a good argument for some of that to be true. But what it also does is remind us that there is some special privilege of having an opportunity to work with a with an expert, but not not somebody who just has more knowledge than you, but somebody who is able to support and guide you in your learning. And that's what a teacher working at their best can do. So there will, of course, be things that the teacher recognizes they need to teach, you know, information that they need to impart, because that's the gap. That's what those children at that point in time have not grappled with before or have not yet understood. And that one of the ways they might better understand it is by some really high quality teacher instruction. But that's not the only way that the teacher's role will be fulfilled. I like the idea of not being an expert in a topic, but more an expert in how to learn and that process, the next steps, the rigor of going through what have you done so far? Or, okay, you missed a bit here. And almost like breaking things down and understanding the processes mm-hmm. to help you work out where you're going to go next, even if it's a topic you don't know about. I think that teacher who can do that can always help. Absolutely. And that, again, that's not to say that there is no value in having really good subject knowledge. Of course there is. But having subject knowledge as a teacher is not the same as having pedagogic subject knowledge. So knowledge about how a subject like geography is broken down, understood, put back together through really active ingredients and made sense of. Yeah, That's the kind of knowledge that a teacher needs. And the thing is, in geography, there's only so much knowledge or expertise you can have in such a very big area. So Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to be an expert, but it's the skills and the understanding of how it links together, I think, is really, really important. Now, we've talked lots of about the children learning, but in that initial quote, you talked about CPD. So how are we the professional decline in terms of context of like teachers and that CPD? This is... This is something that I observe, and I observe it from the sidelines sometimes. So I observe it in how people write about uh, CPD they're attending or CPD they're planning or running. Um, I also observe it in terms of the policy around CPD. So, for example, through if we take CPD as beginning with initial teacher training, I know that's not the classic um, definition of it, but we now have what the government would describe as the golden thread from ITT, initial teacher training, through the early career framework, and then through a whole suite of MPQs, a whole range of national professional qualifications for teachers. So I observe it through that lens. And I also observe it through the lens of working directly with a whole host of teachers, leaders in a range of roles, and freelancers who experience something different and contrast it with what they know is being rolled out to the majority of teachers. So what do I mean by it? I mean almost exactly the same as I mean by the pedagogy of decline in a classroom, that we've, we're treating teachers as if they're empty vessels, that we, ex- we anticipate what they need is a sort of topping up of knowledge, 
that knowledge can be broken down into bite-sized pieces, that what they then are expected to do is demonstrate that they've acquired that knowledge or can put that knowledge into practice tomorrow, as opposed to really getting to grips with like the significant challenges and dilemmas in a complex way and recognizing the breadth and depth of knowledge that they're going to need as teachers and that that will take time to acquire and to to apply. It's a bit similar to what you were describing about the kind of trial and error and the making mistakes. As as teachers, I think we we now anticipate that somebody can tell us what we need to know and how we need to act and that that's what CPD is for when actually the research and the breadth of knowledge we have about the complexity of the teacher's job probably mean that that's it's not sufficient i don't think i've explained that very well but even just if you look at the way that the ITT ECF and MPQ frameworks are written they are written as teachers need to know that as if there is a single answer to everything and teachers need to know how as if there is a single way of doing something and then following on from the statements the know that and the know how statements is a set of required reading or references and a real resistance to anything more complex or wider ranging than that, as if we can just package it all up and deliver it, which I guess is what the government assumes can be done because they have a raft of delivery partners running ITT, ECF and MPQs, as opposed to funding teachers to do master's programmes, for example, where they may read more widely they may engage more critically and they may therefore develop more creative responses to the challenges that they find themselves in. I think there's a local school, primary school, where it was working really, really well. And then a new head teacher came in from a very different type of primary school, much bigger. And they were a deputy and they came in as the head teacher. And what he what they tried to do was replicate what they did in this very, very big four-form-entry four primary school in a one-form-entry primary school. And it's that formulaic approach. This is the answer. So I've taken mm-hmm. the answer from there and I've put it in here and it just hasn't worked. And it was completely wrong. From If you, if you take a step back and look at what's needed in a school like this, you will get a certain set of answers. But he... They didn't look at the situation. They just used the answer, the Mm. answer that works everywhere, apparently, applied it to this school, and it didn't work. And that's the sort of thing is teaching, pedagogy, schools are really, really complicated. You can't take something which works in school A and stick it straight into school B and expect it to work. That has taken years to work towards. Mm -hmm. It's taken dedicated people. It's taken a whole level of... CPD and the understanding and that believing in that you can't just take that final product and drop it into 50 other schools and expect it to have the exact same outcome but that's kind of what the government kind of infers is is what will happen it seems to be and one of the things it has led to I think is a significant 
it's almost as if we work in a system which is more persuaded by brand and branding than it is by nuance and genuine, situated, contextual expertise. Yes. We, We like nice, simple, we like to put things in a box. This box means this, you do this. This box means this, you do this. Not, well, it's kind of that just made sense to me. I mean, a really simple example of that, that, I mean, it's a fundamental debate and disagreement, I think, in the system is around lesson planning and what teachers need to do in order to put together a week's worth of lessons for a class or a series of classes if they're secondary. And you could argue that we shouldn't need to plan individual lessons ourselves anymore as teachers because the internet is awash with them or chat GTP can be programmed to deliver them. Or the mat's done it for you anyway. The subject leaders in the mat have conjured up 36 lesson plans. Here you go. And of course, if you're working in a system, which we are, where teachers' workload is increasing exponentially, it seems, mostly because a lot of the other services that children and families have relied on for meeting the needs, the genuine needs that they have, have been stripped away. So teachers end up with a lot more problems dumped on on them you know it's yep. not a, it's not a very sophisticated way of saying it but it is the reality but when we're working in that system where every teacher's working day is kind of broke they have to think about how will they spend the next minute what will they what what are they doing in the next minute that is going to save them time later on or is going to get the job done efficiently now then it would look from the outside as if planning individual lessons is the greatest waste of time. And so we we were told a few years ago by the DfE that in initial teacher training, student teachers, trainee teachers were not expected to plan their own lessons. And therefore, they weren't expected to be taught how lesson planning really worked. That in order for them to teach a lesson, they needed to take a lesson plan and teach it from, from another source rather than to plan lesson and therefore rather than to learn how to plan lessons and it's such a plausible argument but it also it it eradicates so much of what it is to be a teacher if you don't plan your own lessons then the chances are you're going to trip up when you try and apply a lesson to a particular class and then if you don't know how to get around the problem that you've encountered with that class because the lesson plan that you've been directed to use or you've selected from the internet is not really working, then everything starts to feel very overwhelming very quickly. And that's when things unravel. And that's when we end up with teachers saying, do you know what, this is an undoable job. And we have fewer and fewer teachers, or we have younger and younger teachers, more of whom have been trained without the real nuance of learning how to plan lessons. But even if you don't need to plan every single lesson, the discipline of learning how to plan really good lessons, it it casts your gaze really wide as a teacher. It makes you really think carefully and critically about child development, special educational needs, what it is you really want children to learn, what you think is meaningful to them, the ways that you know they're going to be assessed, how you can 
help to manage and support progress towards that assessment, but also what's going to happen beyond the assessment. What else are they taking away with them? What what are they taking into the next year that they've acquired as a set of learning skills that they didn't have at the beginning of your year, for example? So So we have got to a situation, I think, again, where we are falling victim to this uh, ne- uh, rhetoric around efficiency, but we're never feeling like we've gained any more time. But at, at the same time, we're losing a set of skills that really would make a difference, both to us as individual teachers, to the learners in front of us, and to the future. The thing is, I always, with stuff like this, I always use like maps and roads as a quite, quite an analogy. If I gave you directions on how to get to Heathrow Airport from my house, I said, this is how you get to Heathrow Airport. Would you end up at Heathrow Airport from your house? Probably not. Would anyone? It's unlikely unless they happen to be living in your house. Yes. And can drive a car and can remember the directions you've given them. So even if I wrote them down and gave them to you step by step, look, this is how easy it is to get to Heathrow Airport. No one, unless you live on my road or maybe the next road along type of thing, will get to Heathrow Airport. If I just said, you probably want to get on the motorway, head towards London, get on the M25, and you want to go on the west side, that's enough instruction that each people can make their own understanding of where they are, how they're going to do that first bit, how do they get to that bit. You kind of want looser instructions, not that prescriptive. And that's that, that final bit, that prescriptive part, will come from you as a teacher on, right, this is where we are this is where I want to get to, how do I get everyone there? Mm-hmm. Which goes back to that pedagogy. It does. And it, it, it challenges, challenges us as teachers to work out what our, what our stance is. So I mean, a really good example of this is in the work I do on coaching. Um, if we as teachers believe that our principal job is to solve somebody else's problem or to get them from A to B, then if you go into a coaching conversation with a teacher, you will listen to what they're telling you for long enough to make a judgment about how you could solve their problem. Or you would listen for long enough, or you might watch them teach for long enough to work out how they are deviating from the way that you would teach that lesson or deviating from the standard template of how the academy or school expects them to teach that lesson, rather than looking and thinking and working with the teacher from the point of view of, this is what you're bringing into the situation, your knowledge, your skills, your understanding of the children. This is, these are the bits which are tripping you up. Now let's start to work out what you can do to overcome some of those problems, as opposed to what I would do or what the template and formula would tell you to do. So the broad brush, yeah, as you say, the the kind of directions from a specific address to Heathrow are anticipating that everybody starts from the same place. Yes. And a lot of the work that we do with teachers and with children anticipates that essentially we all start from the same place. One of the things that I was just thinking about as you were talking about things I was wondering is if we could graph historically this graph can't be done unless someone's magic how teachers feel about negative behavior and the amount of negative behavior 
how that correlates with the move towards efficiency. So where we are having all this curriculum and we're going through it in a very standardized way, where we're not actually listening to our children, we're not actually seeing where they are and how to support them. We're not listening to them. We're not valuing them. We're just getting them through the curriculum so they can get their exams to put us at the league table. And how our children are re- reacting to us doing this as a profession. That actually, if we kind of went back to this more project, much more relationship-based where you are supporting them in their learning with more open-ended projects, which might last longer, but you get time to spend with each child and see how they learn and how to support them. Actually, if we were doing that, would we be in the same situation with the behaviour? It's a very good question. Someone, I, someone send the answer in, please. Uh, yeah, and of course, you, you, could, you could certainly start to, I mean, you said, could we graph that? We could certainly interrogate data to indicate whether those two changes over time seem to correlate. So the increased use, for example, of centralized lesson plans, the decreased open-endedness or divergence in assessment, in other words, the increased compliance and convergence in assessment, whether those things seem to correlate with the increasing number of behavioural issues that are identified or internal exclusions or external exclusions or fixed term, ex- whatever. The, we could certainly see whether there's a, co- well, I think there is a correlation. What is harder to prove is a causation. Yes. And part of the reason why that's harder to prove is because when we look for causation, we often just try and find two variables. And it's not two variables. It's an extraordinarily complex ecosystem. Yes. And because it's such an extraordinarily complex ecosystem, we are compelled to look for simple answers and efficiencies because we're trying to straighten it out. Yep. But it doesn't make the complexity of the ecosystem any less complex. No. It tends actually to have the reverse effect. It makes it more complex. Because it's interesting. I hadn't thought that correlation, and I saw something on social media about there was a academy praising themselves that the children walk silently between lessons and you could hear a pin drop and i keep seeing things like this or really strict uniform policies or all of these things happening and i'm going what are you preparing them for what are you thinking their future is going to look like where does anyone apart from if they're going into the armed forces and even then everything has a reason Mm-hmm. what is the reason apart from you're just flexing your power? There's a whole host of things I think going on there. And one of them is flexing power. And I don't think there is um, any need for that power of that form in any setting, actually. But that's my opinion. Um, I think the other thing is, and this is a strange phenomenon, isn't it? It's almost performative. It's look what we can do. Look what we can yeah, look what we do in our setting and let's see how many other people we can show that to via social media. And I mean, that's just odd, isn't it? It was stuff, I'm, I'm, stuff that does not need to be shared on social media is being shared. But on the other hand, the fact that it's being shared at least allows us to have a discussion about, well, is that in any way necessary or in any way human or in any way, as you say, establishing useful 
habits, self-regulation that are going to matter in the future to young people. It, 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 it's, it's about posturing, I think. Yes. It's, a, it's a part of the posturing of look how efficiently we run our schools. They've bought into that rhetoric of we need to run schools that are efficient and streamlined. And it's just like we can get kids from A to B in the curriculum and assess them how much they retrieve or not. We can also get kids from A to B along our corridors without any sort of deviation, hesitation. I'm starting to speak like a uh, Radio 4 panel yes. quiz show. What was it? No, hesitation, Four things deviation. It's, a, it's just a minute or something. Just a minute. It? Hesitation, deviation, repetition. And I think there's probably something else. Maybe it's just the three. But though, yes. I mean, even just start applying those three concepts, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? What, what, how would our learning environments change if we allowed more hesitation, repetition, deviation? I would be amazing if you kind of, in the GCSE years, you halved the content and then made it more open-ended. The impact. Or even not more open-ended, but just deeper. Because if you yes. halve the content, you can make the learning deeper. You can get stuck into it yeah. and enjoy it. That's the thing. I think if we think about mental health and SEMH being a really big, like biggest area, followed by communication interaction, and they're linked, they're mm-hmm. very much linked. And there's, we know that if people, if you go to Maslow's hierarchy of need, if people don't feel valued, don't feel listened to, don't feel part of something, that belonging, then it's going to impact them. So if you're just be literally being pushed through an education system which doesn't care about you, that's going to have an impact on you. And that person, people pushing you through it, they're not seeing you as human because you're just on this conveyor belt. So do you see them as human? Mm. And to me, I, that's where I see a lot of the issues is we've lost those connections. It is really interesting because you brought up the word belonging. And in the last... Since the beginning of this school year, so September 2023, I have noticed an increasing number of people using the word belonging in their narrative for schools. And that might be, you know, keynote titles at conferences or blogs about belonging or justifications of what they're doing as promoting a sense of belonging. And I think, again, we are at the stage where we're distorting, we're at the, where we may be distorting what actually fundamentally is meant by belonging. I, for example, have seen a number of people argue that scenes like you describe, children in perfect uniform, in perfect lines, moving in perfect order, is what promotes belonging. No, it does not. What promotes belonging I've done no research on this, but I'm a human being with 40-something years of experience. People being nice to me, people listening to me, people respecting me, me being thought of. I think Mm -hmm. nothing more than that. That Literally, that's what belonging is about. Yep. And I think that that matters whether you're a newborn or whether you're 5, 13, 18, 25, 55 right the way, right the way through to your last days on earth. And that's, you know, that's why we have, you know, the hospice movement, for example, is because then we can treat people more individually, thoughtfully, 
as part of a community when they're terminally ill. Yes. I think the whole, when, when you have good service in a restaurant, it's where someone, you know, they've actually done something slightly different for you. They've put a bit of extra effort in. Yeah. Or they've just taken time. Yeah. Which they do might do with everyone, but they've just made sure they've got some time to spend with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, tra- I travel a country like lots of people who do talks and conferences on my own. So when you go to a restaurant on your own, it's quite a lonely thing. And when you have these people who just talk to you and they don't, it's not putting any extra in. They're not being, they're being themselves, but they make you feel welcome. Yeah. And again, what you hear is that we don't have time for that. Yep. Because we are overloaded by the educational imperative and the workload. And it, it's, it's, it is the saddest thing to see how that, and it, I mean, essentially it comes down to the, the budgetary decisions that are made that then have to be translated into delivery decisions. I did see on social media that teachers kind of said, what do you spend most of your time doing? And behavior was the biggest part, either restorative or whatever it was dealing with it, managing it, a post, whatever it was, but behavior was the biggest part. And I'm thinking, look, these kids are perfectly fine in every other situation, but school. I don't just mean being at home. If they do drama, if they are in a football team, if they do synchronized swimming, if they have a job because they're more older, if they do any of them and they're well behaved, but when they're in school, they are horrible. Is it them or is it the school? And just to be clear, I'm not saying individual schools. I'm saying the school system. Mm-hmm. One of the things which is really interesting is when you work with the international school sector. So, for example, getting glimpses of school life, ways of working through the Erasmus projects that we've been part of in, in Europe. Or you know, listening to, I went to a, a couple of big coaching conferences in the US and listening to teachers with in different settings. Now, there are no perfect places. There there just aren't. So there's no point trying to find the one place and replicate that system. But one of the things which is most telling is when you start to explain the ways that teachers are working in England as a consequence of the ways that they are expecting their pupils to work, and learn and be in other settings there is a look of deep confusion that comes across people's faces at times and it, it's that sense of being somewhat adrift having being being a bit isolated and exclusionary i think in in our english settings assuming that we're superior and forgetting that we can learn a lot from elsewhere and also not appreciating that it can be different. And this is, again, where we've, we've got one of the youngest teaching workforces in the world. Now, if you, if, you, if you say that, then immediately somebody will accuse you of being ageist, as if it's a problem that we've got one of the youngest teaching forces in the world. And of course, it could be seen as a huge advantage. We've got potentially a lot of young, recent graduates, good subject knowledge, perhaps fewer caring responsibilities so they can they're less stressed about their, how they divide their working week 
But actually what it also means is we've got a huge population of teachers who have really limited experience of anything much more than what has led to us where we are today. Yes. So the, the growing performative culture of schools in England, you know, the, the dominance of the league tables in our thinking, the kind of s- scraping together of resources that, and normalizing of that, the, the creating of uniform classrooms and the, the lack of understanding and ability to cope with difference in classrooms. That's part of our recent history, and it will be very much part of the present and the future if we don't actually start opening our eyes and saying, this is not sustainable. And again, that's this notion of, are we looking for efficiency or are we looking for sustainability? And I think we need to be looking at sustainability. How do we sustain young people's interest in learning? How do we sustain communities that are diverse? How do we sustain teachers to give enough of their energy to the profession without burning out. So they stay in the profession for long enough to become wise. I think when we say we have a young workforce, what that indicates is no one's sticking around, which to me instantly says there is a problem. Mm-hmm. But there is also, as you said, there's a problem of that kind of that, oh, we're back here again, not being actually understood that we're redoing the same thing we did 15 years ago, which didn't work then, but we're back there now. But I think, what we don't we don't want an efficient education system we want an effective education system which actually means meeting the needs of the pupils and to understand that we need to think about what is that ultimate aim and i read a book which i only got halfway through because i kept getting angry with it and putting it down which was about skills versus knowledge in terms of which is best problem is the ultimate way of deciding which was best was basically to test results leading to PISA scores, which, which, which has is... got no bearing on anyone apart from the school, the local authority, and the country. She, they, they didn't in this book. They didn't take out well. Where what is the future looking like for these people who learn knowledge or learn skills? What's the kind of the future life opportunities for these? They didn't do that. It was just which one gave us better PISA scores. Which everyone did that was the right answer. And I'm just going, no, this is the complete opposite. You're thinking about a scoring system for a country, not about what is right for these people. And I, I, I got so, I haven't, I want to finish it to hope that they might deviate or there might be some, but I just got angry with it and had to put it down because it was the, it was so wrong in its understanding of actually what we're aiming to, towards, which is preparing people for life. Mm-hmm. And life isn't conformity. We're not in that or that mis- dystopian type. Everyone is conforming and lining up in things and marching. No, you can be what you want to be. That's what we tell them. And then we conform them to only be one thing, mm-hmm. which just makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It makes absolutely no sense. And I, I have noticed with some CPD and things like that, it really is kind of just giving people steps on a path and that understanding of why or that where you start from isn't there. It's Mm -hmm. this is. And I really, really get upset with that. And my final point is you talked about around the world, a different teaching. And I think when people write, all teachers struggle with, we mean all teachers in England struggle with. Yeah, if you actually went to Wales, 
or Scotland, and Scotland have no classroom assistants. So the only teaching assistants in Scotland are those for SEM. Mm-hmm. So if you are a class teacher in Scotland, you would not have a TA. or Yeah. But yet you will be walking out that school at 4.30. Yeah. You won't be in late. You won't, you won't be in 7 a.m. You'll be in a reasonable time. You'll be out. You'll get kicked out. And you won't be doing a huge amount of work in the evening. What is it that's different in Scotland to England? Now they don't do much data. They don't do much. They don't do league tables. They don't do any of that. No, they're creeping up with some of our policies, but no, they, they have had a generally more balanced, sensible education policy for the last few years. And one of the things which I really made me laugh when we first did it, when we, we break down the Scottish curriculum, and in within all the aspects of English, so within reading, writing, and speaker spoken language the first area you come across is enjoyment and choice. And I always laugh because I always said in England, we've made sure we've got rid of that. (laughs) It's not about enjoyment. It's not about choice. And there are some fantastic teachers in England that still put that very much at the, the beginning of every decision they make, but they're often having to do that with a little bit of invisibility under the cloak yes. of invisibility, or they are seen as the mavericks. Yes. And they may or may not be allowed to be that. No, they're fighting. They've got one hand, they're doing the enjoyment, they're swinging a battle axe while they're fighting, everyone telling them not to do it. Yeah, something has to change. Something really has to change. And I hope people will think about that correlation between the education system, people not wanting to be there, not enjoying it. It's not being about the pupils. It's not about the teachers. It's purely about efficiency. And it has to stop. It has to. Now, interesting, I've written some notes as I read your blog and things like that. I wrote down the term, using the correct terminology, which we've both come across before, where you've got to use the correct phrasing as a trust. There's a lot of trusting going on, which also lends into into the marketing that people, which is that uniform thing of how we appear, which again, that belonging, that idea of it's not belonging, that's marketing. Well, it's belonging to us. You belong yes. to us. <laughs> as a, yeah, as a you mat. belong to us. Yeah, you belong to us. You are owned by us. <laughs> I've written Dumbing Down CPD, which we've seen a lot of, and you said it's not about spending time. What do you think about this? It's more like we've got to get through this. You've got to get to the right answer, which is this, and it takes you five steps, and this is all you need to know. We think we're seeing a lot of that, but problem is behavior isn't that simple. Mental health isn't that simple. Supporting SEN isn't that simple, which is why I think we're struggling. And everyone doing the same thing, which I think we've discussed already. And one phrase, which I think I mentioned to you, and if you do know this word and if I pronounce it wrong, I am so sorry, but it is quite interesting. It's hoitagogy, H-U-E-T-A-G-O-G-Y, hoitagogy, hutagogy, I watched a whole video of loads of people getting it, no idea. Which the goal of hoitagogy is to teach lifelong learning. And one of the things I said here, which in various bits was, the theory and practice of self-determined learning that focuses on the importance of knowing how to learn as a key skill for the 21st century. It builds on the self-directed principles of androgogy, which I have no idea, in which the students develop their own learning skills. 
Now, we talk about as a 21st century thing, but I personally, that was me in the 90s doing my projects. I learned how I learned. I made my mistakes. I was rubbish at timekeeping. I left it till this, or I did this, or I put too much effort into that, and then it was, it was unbalanced. To me, that's something I did in the 90s and made mistakes and learned. But we're now saying it's a brand new thing. Well, we always, we're always good at um, bringing up new terminology. You could even say that the professional pedagogy of professional decline is potentially just a piece of jargon. It's just a, it's just a concept to describe something. And it's, yes, it is interesting, isn't it? But I think what's really important about language is if we can find language that speaks to people, that, that allows us to express an idea in a way that others can engage with, then it's really helpful. One of the things we're very good at, as I said already, is coming up with lots of new terms. Sometimes they're new terms for the same old stuff. And sometimes they're new terms that seem to imply uh, or actually are about the people using those terms feeling more powerful than the people who don't have those terms in their in their kind of personal dictionary. So they can be used as a way of exerting power, suggesting hierarchy. Um, but without doubt, a vocabulary, rich professional vocabulary is as important as a really fantastic vocabulary for somebody writing creative writing in English or writing well in in history. You know, have, having the words to use as a tool to get the communication across is essential. Um, you describe a word, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce, which is, you know, this notion of creating learning opportunities that create the learners we need for the 21st century. Let's just remember, we're a quarter of the way through that. We're a quarter of the way through the 21st century. That's depressing. It is quite, it's quite, quite odd, isn't it, to think that through? Because we always think about it as the future. It's very much not. It's very much the present. And if we actually went back to where we, what we envisaged and imagined we would need of individuals leaving, leaving education before we got to the 21st century, if we think about what was being written and said then about what we would need and what we have now, we might start to see the gap. And I do acknowledge that sometimes really facile things are said. So, you know, the 90% of jobs in the such and such 20, you know, in the future are not even invented yet. Well, those are just plucking numbers out of thin air to make a point. Well, I quite like that phrase because it's telling you, to me, you kind of don't know. So the idea of conforming them into something actually makes no sense. The fact that we're on a podcast, which didn't exist when I was in secondary school. Exactly. You didn't know this jobs, was going to be something you could do. Most of the jobs I do didn't exist in the 90s. Yet I'm doing them. And so that tells me there's no point in someone pushing me down a route. What mm-hmm. we've got to do is, is another bit in here was, is that the teacher serves more like a coach, which is where are you? Where do you want to get to idea? And in reality, all your children are going to leave school and they're going to disappear off in loads of different directions. So why are we trying to conform them? For a while. Why can't we start that different directions earlier on? Mm-hmm. There is a need. I, I know there's a need for a certain level of English and maths and certain skills is a general core. But even within that, we can have different paths. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I like that phrase of 90% of jobs have aren't because it helps you think that you don't know to stop deciding. I think the concept works. I think what people then get obsessed by is the number, which is ridiculous. So yes. we should never sort of sit there and try and quantify it. But it's also, you know, think if I am of an age where most of the, yeah, I'm at a, of an age where my children and my nieces and nephews are all late teenagers and in the 20s and indeed now 30s. And what I'm really fascinated by is how that decade from leaving school to where many of them are now has has been the the point in time where they've really emerged as humans really evolved into who they are now and thinking and inevitably you know you, you don't want anybody to leave school and that's the cliff edge you kind of drop like a stone and nothing else changes you never develop anymore but it's really interesting watching them those of them particularly that are flourishing I would not have predicted the ways in which they're flourishing based on their GCSE scores or their experience of schools. Yes. And that you could say, you could then argue, well, it doesn't matter what we do in schools because people will flourish later. But the struggle for them to flourish sometimes is very real. And so sometimes I feel we set people up to struggle in their early adult life. And again, struggling is helpful, but is that the only experience we want to, for them? Do we not want a more? Yeah. As someone who got, I think I got an A at GCSEs, Bs and Cs mostly, I think two Es. And then I just about scraped two A levels with 20% attendance. Throughout that time, and I got diagnosed with autism and ADHD this year. And Looking back, it's really quite obvious, but I also completely understand that it was a very different world back then. They generally did the best they did, but the problem is it was always my fault. Everything was my fault. And that is a something you put on a child when things that people don't conform, they don't fit into that school setting. It's their fault, not the schools. It's always them. And that is something you put on that child and it takes them a very long while to realize it's not them. And it, it, it took me quite a while to go, I can do that. And I still have huge imposter syndrome and various other things because I've always been told all the way through my education, I'm not good enough, it's my fault, I'm immature, I'm this, I'm that. 43 years old, and that's still 44, I'm still stuck with those feelings in my head given to me by school because I didn't fit into the thing. And I think now it's even worse for children. Back in the 90s, it was pretty flexible. I just didn't really fit in. But now if you really don't fit in, if you don't do, if you can't learn the way you're supposed to learn, if you can't perform in that GCSE exam with all of that stuff you've learned for two years and get it all out of your head in two hours, then you're basically, you. you it kind of feels like if you're not going to university or college, you failed. Mm-hmm. And that will last with children a very long time. So going back to we can do what we want, we can do what we want to support the children is the answer. Mm-hmm. I, said, I don't think league tables matter. I don't think PISA scores matter. I think what's better for you as a secondary school is the number of children who come back to you every year and say thank you. Mm-hmm. I think that's just to me. That is a bit that somebody who's recognised what you've done as a school or a teacher mm-hmm. and has come back and said thank you. That is really how we should be judging schools. 
And another thing, and this goes back to your belonging idea as well. It's, I think you're right. I think it really matters that individuals are able to acknowledge the ways in which a school allowed them to be successful and to flourish and to be and to be grateful. It's, you know, it's lovely to be thanked. It's also about how communities feel about their schools. And I think that there's a lot of schools. Well, when I was a teacher, our schools were called community schools. I can't find a school called a community. I mean, that, that was in the title, such and such community school. And the name, the first word in the title was the name of the place. We have hardly any schools like that. And it's not just what was in the name. It's what did that actually indicate about that school? Well, the first thing it indicated about that school was that it was situated in a particular cultural geographical location. And it's, it was often the case that the parents and grandchildren had gone to that school or the forerunner of that school. And that over time, the teachers really began to understand that community well, because many of the teachers stayed in those schools for 5, 10, 15 years. So there was a greater degree of attunement between the community and the school through the individuals and the relationships between them. I have heard the argument that some of those community schools were the schools which had the lowest expectations. But I also would argue that putting community at the heart of school is probably the most important thing you can do. And I think where the real challenges emerge at the moment are in those communities where it feels as if a school has been planted in them or their community school has been colonised by another organisation whose ways of being and whose personnel have very little relationship with the community that that school is now situated in. And I get the feeling that there's a whole host of things around relationships, around community and around how we really judge the value that schools bring to people and place that we need to turn on their heads. There are lots of probably schools who feel that all their parents hate them. And you can see on Facebook, certain schools in different areas get a lot of hate and the pupils don't like the school. And the teachers don't like either, or they're battling. And you kind of got to take a step back and go, this is a school in a community. They should be supporting each other, but they're not. So what is wrong? And generally, it's that factor. A lot of the teachers are from the area. The kids are from the area. The parents are in the area. The direction of what that school should be is external. And in reality, you should sit there and go, so the teachers shouldn't have a problem with the parents, all this thing. It should be fine. It's that direction that enforced the efficiency coming from out that the teachers are having to follow is causing this mm -hmm. disruption. And it is causing teachers a lot of emotional grief. Those that are most emotionally sensitive to that are also the ones that experience the greatest burnout. And you can see on social media that you, you do see, and I think in secondary schools where they do get, it does go quite, it's really hard. 
for secondary school teachers in the current setting is you kind of, you can read their posts on social media and it's like they don't care anymore, which they do on the inside, Mm -hmm. but what they go through every day, it wears them down, which is why we have a young workforce. Mm -hmm. They can only last so long in that sort of setting. Mm -hmm. The more you worry, well, the more you think about it, the more worried you become that we are in a spiral of inevitable decline, that there is very few ways out of this. But we can't exist like that. We have to exist with an experience of hopefulness. Yeah. And we have to find that that hope from somewhere. There's a thing about they will redo Ofsted or something, and they'll do it under a different name, but that's kind of changing one thing. It's got to be a much bigger change, mm-hmm. much bigger, which is not all about money because you could look at the numbers and go, actually, the funding from then to now is huge increase and all this lot. So it's not really about funding, but it is about funding in the right place at the right time, a lot more trust, reducing that workload, reducing those external pressures. So get rid of league tables. Mm-hmm. Get rid of PISAs. Don't care about that. Actually, what is right for our children and our communities. And I, I like you bringing that community in because you want to be that feel that belonging in school. You want to be feel like that they value you, which means the school have to work out how do I feel belonging in this community? Mm-hmm. How do we have that connection? And that's that's actually a thing I hadn't really thought about because with so many new academies popping up and the things like that is actually yeah, they do feel like they're plonked. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just here's a school, get on with it. Yes. This is the brand. Get on with it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. I'm going to wrap it up because we generally aim for 45 minutes and we're an hour and 15. <laughs> so I definitely need to wrap it up. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's made me really think a lot. And hopefully if you're listening, it's helped you think and think about where you are in all of this. And it's not something that anyone in a school can change other than a head teacher. It's all of this stuff is a head teacher and above to me. Because however much you want to, you are going to be that maverick in a school, but you're generally going to be fighting. But it is something that we do need to change. It, it needs to change for lots of people and for lots of reasons. Generally, the people it's going to make a big difference for are those not making the decisions. They're the people who have no idea of the impact of all of this. So big thank you for coming on the show today, Rachel. You've given me a link. So there's a link to the original blog posts, which you wrote, so people can read that link to your Twitter and websites and emails, and you will find all of those as always in the show notes. So that's wherever you listen to the podcast or on the Sencast website for listening to the show. If you aren't following us on social media or find us on Twitter, still going to call it Twitter at the Sencast on Facebook, the Sencast on Instagram, the Sencast. Twitter's part of the problem as well, but that's a whole other conversation. The Sendcast is created produced by us here at B Squared. We will help show the small steps of progress pupils at CND make. We have a wide range of frameworks to suit different abilities and ages, but did you know about autism progress? This is our framework for helping profile a pupil's autism and how it impacts them. It is based on CERT and looks at communication, social interaction, emotional regulation, and flexible thinking. And autism progress also includes a wide range of strategies to help support pupils. Visit the B Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. 
Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It is goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. <laughs>